0: to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 37, another great episode this week. So much to discuss. Let me first make my pitch for Counterpunch as I always do. I love Counterpunch not just because it's a great place to go for left commentary, left analysis, uh, alternative media space that in many ways, and this is just my opinion here, it's actually quite sacred because if you look around and you think about what spaces we have, um, you know, on the left, in the alternative media, most of them have deeply problematic elements to them. John Pilger recently wrote about being censored in his criticisms of Hillary Clinton. Can you imagine left outlets censoring because of talk, uh, because of truth being spoken about Hillary Clinton? Uh, can you imagine left outlets beating the drums of war uh, during the Obama administration? And yet these are the types of things that we have seen counter Counterpunch stands apart from the crowd on that point on that point and on so many others, and it's one of the reasons I'm uh, obviously deeply grateful to be able to do Counterpunch Radio, to be involved with the Counterpunch Project, and always suggest that if you agree with me about the value of Counterpunch, Get a subscription to the print magazine. It's not a ton of money. It's a great thing to get in the mail. It's now bi-monthly, so the quality, I think, is even better. The columns are, of course, great. The artwork, we have all of these great contributors, each and every uh, issue. So do consider, and by the way, it's print. How many things these days are even left in print? So think about it, get it, read it on the toilet, read it on the train, do whatever the hell you want to do with it, but get that subscription support, Counterpunch. Also, of course, Counterpunch Radio, reviews on iTunes, positive reviews, the more the better, it drives us up the recommendation charts, brings this show to more people. You'd be surprised how many people find podcasts that way by reading reviews, seeing what's recommended to them, so consider it, please. Anyway, uh, let me turn to our guest this week. Um, We have two very important guests, and I'm going to start with a uh, friend of the show, if I can be so bold as to say that, Paul Street. He is, of course, a regular contributor to Counterpunch. He is a well-respected, well-known author. He is a hater of puppies and kittens and all things that people love. Um, He is an ultra-sectarian leftist. He has committed the gravest sins, and I'm happy to have him on counterpunch radio paul street welcome back
1: uh thank you very much and thank you for identifying me in advance as an ideological criminal
0: Ideological criminal is right. Why must you constantly commit these crimes? Let's begin with your most recent transgression, your most recent public sins, uh, your article on Counterpunch, second thoughts on Bernie's viability. Very interesting. I wouldn't go so far as to say it created a firestorm, but uh, there were certainly smoldering uh, ashes strewn about. So um, (laughs) let's discuss this. Now, what is this? article because quite frankly i'm seeing it and i'm identifying paul street as probably the leading edge of anti bernie agitation on the left so what are these second thoughts you're having paul
1: oh well you know i um it's it's there's a difference between having an issue um with the sanders phenomena politically from the left which i of course still have uh on one hand and then on the other hand uh changing one's mind a little bit um about Sanders' viability uh, in the general election, and it's 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 kind of a hypothetical argument. But I had published things before, in which I had made the case that um, that Hillary Clinton uh, was more viable in a contest with the um, at the time I thought many of us thought maybe still is the likely Republican opponent in the general election, Donald Trump that Hillary would be uh, be more viable v- vis-a-vis Trump than um, than Sanders would because all this ruling class money, all this 1%, all this Wall Street, all this corporate money that is so critical in determining election o- outcomes from the presidential race on down, um, much of it that would normally go to a Republican would certainly go to a Democrat with Hillary as the nominee. and be- be given the fact that Hillary's kind of a... Uh, De facto, a, a, a moderate Republican anyway, and um, and that um, you know, therefore, and, whereas if Sanders was the nominee, uh, elite money, Wall Street political money um, would have too many problems with a nominal socialist, a sort of New Deal progressive Democrat. They'd have too many issues with him uh, to to uh, be willing to uh, fund his campaign at all. And it would just be yeah. sort of, you know, it's just a great advantage. Now, you know, looking on, looking at Trump and, and a lot of what we've learned about Trump uh, and the problems that the ruling class, uh, the capitalist elite in this country would have and could anticipate that it would have with a Trump presidency, I made the argument in this piece that uh, actually in all likelihood, um, Sanders might end up being a preferred choice. Now, this, is at the level of, um, um, this is at the level of funding and, and elite campaign investing. That Sanders might actually be preferable to Trump. Trump is a, um, uh, assuming he could, you know, it's, I, which I think is kind of a, a big reach. Hypothetically, the notion of a Trump presidency, but assuming he could get in, um, he'd be a nightmare from a ruling class perspective uh, in, in terms of delegitimizing uh, politics and government yet further. I mean, I don't know how much more they can be delegitimized, but but I mean, Trump is really sort of a fiasco. I mean, we saw in Chicago three weeks ago. Uh, just a major rebellion, uh, particularly in you know in urban neighborhoods and in the near west side of Chicago, a significant rebellion at the the, the mere attempt of this guy to to appear and have one of his uh, crazy wacky right wing white nationalist uh, rallies. Uh, and I would just continue. I mean, uh, you want to see, uh, see chaos in the streets. You want people to see people up in arms. That's why some left anarchists I know would love a Trump presidency and the sort of street-fighting, sort of you know, bomb-throwing, ideological, criminal, uh, uh, destructive side of me. There's a part of me that would even relish that, too. So, I mean, I think that would be a huge problem uh, for elites to have, have a, just this clownish media character in the White House. It would be a huge black eye. Uh, maybe even worse than George W. Bush invading uh, Iraq in 2003 for America's public image, which is is bad news for international American business. Uh, And lately, Trump has been making all these very interesting uh, uh, sort of isolationist sounds in his campaign. Maybe I shouldn't say lately. Throughout, he's got this kind of America first mentality. He's actually been critical of nation building uh repeatedly he appeared before the Washington Post recently and uh and gave this whole sort of, you know, wacky, wild but and yet not completely insane, uh sort of critique of of the kind of radical interventionism and imperialism that uh come to think of it, uh, uh George W. Bush, but also Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama represent. And he sort of uh made this case for, you know, emphasizing United States first, rebuilding our bridges instead of, you know, blowing up and or building bridges in Iraq or Afghanistan or Well, He's been sort of pointing out that some of these interventions the U.S. has been involved in, you know, have turned out to be expensive disasters. He doesn't call them crimes quite. He doesn't call them crimes of imperialism, but he's questioning them. And I don't think imperial elite really likes that. So he's calling into question the structure of a globalism, imperialism, in a, in a very sloppy particular kind of way. And Bernie doesn't really do that. That's one of the things that's very irritating to uh, those of us on the left about Sanders is um, it seems to be very much not just... Andrew Levine said on on Counterpunch uh, a while back that Sanders, that leftists need to calm... Uh, hard leftists like me need to calm down a little bit and, get, and and stop criticizing Sanders for being soft on imperialism. Well, soft on imperialism is a uh, is pretty mild uh, uh, description of Sanders. He, he's, he's a empire man through and through. And if people look at the article, I go through uh, a number of the the ways, you know, in in which that's the case. I mean, one thing that's really interesting about we've got our first nominal socialist making a bid for a major party presidential campaign um, that anyone can remember. And I mean, he doesn't even bring out the Dennis Kucinich, Jesse Jackson pie chart. To his speeches that have the, uh, you know, that show that more than half of federal discretionary spending goes to this monstrous, gigantic Pentagon system, you know, that pays for more than a thousand military bases spread out across more than a hundred and, you know, in ten countries. He doesn't substantively question uh, 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 the empire. He's, he was a avowed supporter over and against opposition from anti-war activists. In his hometown, of the uh, criminal and unnecessary bombing of Serbia, he's defended uh, Israel and its treatment of Palestinians in uh, Gaza. Uh, he's a, he's a supporter of uh, of the U.S. client state, Saudi Arabia, calls for them to step up their um, their role in the Middle East, as if they're uh, they're not already causing enough harm across uh, that region in Yemen and uh, elsewhere. He's he. Um, Lobbied for and he's uh, uh, pushed for and celebrated the building of a of a F thirty five base in Vermont because it would create jobs in Vermont a base that's leading to the displacement of uh, of uh, hundreds of Vermont uh, homeowners I mean I could go on and on he's very much an empire man and I think um, the ruling class would be uh, probably prefer Bernie in a uh, to a significant degree over the kind of chaos that uh, that Sanders presidency would involve. I think Sanders presidency um, um, probably wouldn't get very far. And I think smart elite 1% uh, lobbyists and election investors know this would not get very far. Mm-hmm. With uh, I mean, he, he, he might call himself a socialist, but he's no such thing. I mean, he as much as said so himself. He's kind of a neo-New Deal liberal. But it's really questionable how much of even in the way of a kind of a vaguely – Progressive, uh, liberal, New Deal program—he'd actually be able to get through, you know, in the dollar-drenched corridors of power in Washington, uh, D.C. He could be sort of counted on, I think, um, to maybe keep people off the streets in a way that uh, Trump certainly couldn't, and probably that, that Hillary actually couldn't. He sort of be—he could sort of count on selling this illusion that progressive change is attained uh, mainly through the ballot box. You know, once every two or once every four years. That's a real big ruling class imposed national religion that electoral politics choosing between Democrats and Republicans is like the avenue, the one and only real avenue to change. I think he could even be sort of counted on to, um, to be used to discredit socialism. I mean, the irony being he's not really a socialist, but he'd get in have all kinds of progressive expectations around him, uh, and then suffer what every president suffers when they get in, which is the reality is that the country is owned by the, uh, the top. Well, one, it's really a 1%, try the point percent um, which gets what it wants, regardless of the marionette theater of electoral politics. And then failure ensues and people become angry at the president. And as Sanders was in, I mean, you can be very sure that, one, that the corporate media and uh, the sort of corporate-owned intellectual culture uh would explain to everybody that uh, this just shows what happens when socialists come into power. they blame socialism mm-hmm. for policy failures that are really rooted in capitalism. So maybe uh, you know maybe uh, maybe the far-seeing chess master type of elites anyway if they exist might be able to understand why it might be preferable to have Bernie in than, uh, than Trump.
0: Yeah, you know, Paul, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, although, well, we'll have to get into some of the nuances where I think there might be some disagreement. But mm-hmm. um, and I'm going to leave Trump aside for sure. just a second, because that's a whole other issue that I, I, I want to discuss with you. But I do understand at least the logic of what you're saying. And let's, let's play it out even further, because what you're suggesting, and there's, I think, a lot of evidence to this point is essentially that what a Bernie would do in a hypothetical, and again, I'm still convinced Hillary Clinton wins this election. Oh, it's it's absolutely just,
1: hypothetical, uh, right. Yeah,
0: and I'm still convinced, you know, the Wall Street money drives Hillary into the White House in a fiasco general election against Trump and so forth. And so, But leaving that aside, in this hypothetical of a Bernie presidency, what Bernie would essentially be is basically hope and change to the second power in other okay. words it's 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 everything that obama was except that Bernie is taking it further to the left, Mm quote-unquote, right? That it's basically the extension of the very same kinds of policies, the same sorts of left imperialism, left humanitarian aggression, uh, you know, sold under the banner of democratic socialism. So, in other words, basically being able to continue the same foreign policy, throwing some crumbs at the plebs, you know, uh, some crumbs. and and, And again, they're not irrelevant i mean you know things regarding health care and perhaps reining in a little bit you know some of the excesses of wall street some show trials maybe you know show trials in quotes of course um these types of things you know left populist policies while being able to continue the war machine all of that so essentially it would basically be a third term of obama slightly shifted to the left
1: well, one of the hopeful aspects of that then is it might be sort of the ultimate example of the uh, of the limits of major party electoral power. Yeah, policy. exactly. Um, and we might see on a bigger scale um, a sort of an example of what I think played out with Occupy in uh, 2011, where people finally got it—you know—that this is what happens. Uh, that, that both that both parties are sort of owned, lock, stock, and barrel by the deep state, right? You know, the deep, the, the real rulers, the actual masters behind the marionette theater, the people who are really pulling the levers behind the curtain of the Wizard of Oz. And and that lesson um, would lead folks perhaps, yeah, beyond beyond um, major party electoral politics, major, maybe beyond the election madness, this notion that this is how we change things. I mean, that'd be the good thing. You know, and I hear a lot from Sanders supporters that Bernie has been saying, we need social movements and we need great, huge progressive you know, uh, grassroots, rank and file movement. I've looked for this a lot in Sanders, and you generally see it in the context of if I get in as president. So that's all the priority. Everything's about the electoral politics. Then no president alone can face down these big corporate interests, and of course the Republicans. And of course, he'll be. You can count on him to get everyone to be angry at the Republicans all the time. Yeah. Um. And you know, which is a way of deflecting us. Uh. You know, and it's sort of a lesser evilism. And Bernie's real big on lesser evilism. That's part of why he said he'd support Hillary Clinton when she, you know, she's the eventual nominee. Um, you know, but I've heard him say that pretty much in, in, in almost as an adjunct uh, that we need social that we need a social movement, a grassroots movement pretty much as a follow up adjunct to the electoral objective. I think what you're talking about is that there's a possibility, and I agree with you, that a Sanders presidency, and again, I agree with you, it's very, very hypothetical. Uh, I, her lead, in, in uh, Hillary's lead in superdelegates and in money is 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 in all likelihood insurmountable. I mean, it would just be absolutely extraordinary, uh, a late-game comeback for Sanders to get the nomination somehow now and to talk the superdelegates into going over to his side. But yeah, if he got through... Um, then maybe it would be an object lesson, uh I would hope leading us, leading people, and particularly young people. And one of the things that's very exciting about the Sanders thing is the uh the turnout of eighteen to twenty-nine year olds and even up up through the thirties. For a candidate who, to do somewhat deceptively, uh, calls himself a socialist. I mean, it's an indication that those young Americans are are fed up with the normal terminology of politics. That they're as eager and ready to support someone who who, who describes themselves at least occasionally in that way. That those kids, those people, uh, would get it that. We need social movements in and of themselves. We need a huge, powerful, grassroots so- social movement in and of itself, independent of electoral extravaganzas once every four years, whatever their outcomes. We need to change the whole calculation that goes on uh, politically at the, at, at, at the elite level uh, with a different and new kind of grassroots politics. and That's a little different than what Bernie's talking about, but actually I think we agree about it. Jeff, speaking and, about
0: that, yeah, and I agree with you on that point. But again, I want to bring it back to what you already brought up. You brought up Occupy in 2011. Yeah. I was at Occupy. I mean, I don't want to say from day one, because that's not exactly true. It was more like day 11 or so, you know what I mean? But I mean, I was down there at Zuccotti Park and involved in, you know, more or less the early stages of Occupy and watching this thing developing and getting excited and realizing even at that time that they were already trying to co-opt Occupy to try to fold it back into the Obama 2012 campaign. I remember people uh, there who I would consider to be DNC operatives doing that and— There was a pushback against that and it didn't quite happen in that way and yet... We have seen Bernie Sanders emerge and a lot of those Occupy people are are, are are steadfastly pro-Bernie, working in Bernie's campaign, talking about this as a logical expression of the sentiment from Occupy. And to me, I hear people saying that like it's a good thing. And to me, that's a very dangerous way to look at it because that's exactly the opposite of what we want to see. We want to see grassroots movements evolving, flourishing expanding in myriad ways, not getting f- roped right back into the two-party uh, bourgeois democracy. And that's kind of what's happened. Now, I'm not implicating everyone in Occupy obviously and I'm not saying that you know that these people have the have the wrong intentions I know for many of them most of them maybe all of them their hearts are in the right place but the problem is it always getting folded right back into the controlled political system and that to me is one of the more insidious aspects of the Bernie campaign that it has demobilized rather than mobilized and so when they talk about how Bernie is mobilizing grassroots movements I, I I hate to say it, but I see the opposite.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm afraid that's that's pretty much consistent with my experience with Occupy, as well. There were uh, there were kids, and it was mainly young people, same demographic as a lot of the Bernie voters, just all over the map. But the cadre in the Iowa City one that I participated in, and uh, also when I went into Chicago a fair amount, uh, where people who had sort of direct actionist sympathies and sentiments. And had an understanding of it um, of 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 this of the movement as being among other things something that 's not supposed to be absorbed into major party politics uh, and yet there were also these other elements and of course you know um, uh Mitt Romney and the Republicans in two thousand and twelve were just almost out of central casting i mean they were almost perfect for de- for Democrats to try and Take that. They literally, the language of the ninety nine percent versus the one percent was was grasped onto by Democratic Party operatives. And that happened right here in Iowa City. I saw it in very graphic um, graphic kinds of ways, and it's, it's sort of unfortunate. One of the things that I worry about with Sanders uh, is that when he finally has to fold, And he will. And it's a very interesting moment on the left when he has to, how he's how he concedes and how people respond to his his concession, Um, that it has a demobilizing potential um, in that with all this energy thrown into this candidate, who because of money and because of media and because of the party structures and how they're set up right now, really didn't have a chance of winning. But but since this is so ingrained in our political culture that this is democracy and this is a referendum on what people want, it'll sort of feed this sense of, uh, oh, we had a guy and he ran for the progressive agenda, but we just didn't have the numbers to win. We just didn't have the numbers to win. And that just shows most people aren't progressives. And meanwhile, you're still going to have public opinion data that shows the majority of the country thinks that wealth is way too unequally distributed, thinks that corporations have far too much influence, uh, uh, thinks that unions ought to be uh, recognized and expanded, thinks that the environment ought to be healed, thinks that the Pentagon budget is too high. Um, You know, and and we're going to lose touch with the fact and social movements can keep in touch with this fact and keep the pressure on the most of the people in the country are pretty much left progressives on on policy issues, but the voting thing is not a is, is is not a full referendum on what people really think, and yet it seems like it is and i I worry that when Sanders fails it sort of play out that way. I can just hear people saying, "Oh, we tried and we didn 't have the numbers and Really, what we want to say on the, on, on on the real left is that 's not all of politics that 's one little tiny part of politics it 's these elections that are held once every four every 2 years in a very skewed and kind of way sanders is right we have a, a rigged election system and we have a rigged society and it's rigged in a lot more ways than sanders talks about he's obsessed with campaign finance he sounds like he's a common cause uh, campaign finance reformer these days at the time but but um you know that there's this other kind of politics and and it has a whole history and it's it's actually when the most remarkable things have been achieved in this country is when people um uh, embrace the politics of the streets, you know, who's in this, who's sitting in the streets, who's sitting in the workplaces, who's sitting in the uh, town halls, um, who's sitting in the state capitals, you know, goes a lot further really than who's sitting in the White House. I'm, of course, paraphrasing Howard, um, Howard Zinn. Um, and, you know, one of the great classic examples of co-optation of social movement politics uh, happened in 2011, too, uh, and I'm not talking about the occupy. I'm talking about Madison, Wisconsin. Yep. Uh, and it was, I mean, the 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 literal top-down Democratic Party shutdown of that initially remarkable social movement uh, in defense of not just public sector workers. It became kind of a working class movement. People came from all over the country to stand up for the working class. I mean, I'm literally. Uh, The command came from the top down that, okay that was nice. You can all go home now. It's time to take down your protest posters and stop talking about crazy things like direct, you know, general strikes and direct action and pick up your election clipboards. And everything was channeled into this inherently doomed uh, recall campaign which never had a chance and put up a sort of the same milk toast kind of corporate squishy Democrat. uh, What was he? Tommy Barrett, who'd already had his head kicked in by uh, by Scott Walker once before and was due to get it kicked in again. And and then everyone was kind of depressed. Uh, It's kind of what happens when you lose elections. And the other thing, too, that I think is really
0: dangerous and you know, believe me, uh, I would love to be wrong about this. It just, yeah, you know, that's what I said in 2008. You know, I, unfortunately, for people that used to be friends of mine, was not buying Obama. I was actually pretty, pretty hard anti Obama in 2008, and that certainly lost me a lot of uh, formerly uh, what I thought were left progressive friends who were involved in the anti war movement during the Bush years. But, um, what I what I predicted about Obama, was, or what I said at the time, was I would love to be wrong. I really would. I would be the happiest person if he turns out to be a left progressive who really does end these wars and really does reign in, you know, the empire and all of this stuff. And of course, I was proven 100% right, as were you, as were many other people, about who Obama was and what he would become. And... What I'm saying here, the reason I bring that up is because I again will say I would love to be proven wrong about a potential Bernie presidency because in my – or actually not even just that, Bernie losing – in this campaign to Hillary, rather than it turning into some kind of a, you know, decentralized, broad-based grassroots movement across many different issues, unifying the left against the Democratic Party uh, and and the Republican Party, rather than that, what I would see is such anger at. Bernie, quote unquote, having had the election stolen from him, and that what we need is campaign finance reform. We need to reform our political system in order to prevent the quote unquote establishment from stealing it from us in the future, which is, of course, the weakest possible mobilization you could ever have because not only is it not going to happen, it actually serves to validate the political system. As As it already exists. In other words, if we could just tweak it a little bit, just change Citizens United, just change this and change that, well, then we could have a vibrant democracy again, which is, of course, the antithesis of the real argument of saying that the political and economic, as well as, of course, social system and fabric are inherently flawed and need to be not reformed, but revolutionized, that is to say transformed, of course, and that is where Bernie won't go.
1: Right. Well, you know, with the Obama thing in 08, I was probably like you, I was astonished at all our progressive and liberal friends who just wouldn't seem to do elementary homework, I mean, basic homework, on Obama. I mean, Obama would give one speech to uh, public workers and students and faculty in Madison, Wisconsin, or Ann Arbor, right, you know, progressive-sounding campus town, peaceful-sounding speech. And then give an entirely different type of speech to the Council on Foreign Relations or the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and write in a, an article with a different, completely different types of signifiers for foreign affairs, right, the, the CFRs journal. And all you had to do was uh, look how he talked to elite bodies and sort of compare and contrast it and just predict in advance that this was a very imperial, uh, maybe above all an imperial president. Uh, that he was, uh, in fact, a very corporate and neoliberal president, and even an objectively white supremacist president. And, and, and it's, it, it's just depressing that people won't do their homework on candidates, particularly when they elevate candidate centered politics and major party politics and give you lectures about the need to get your hands dirty and quit being a purist and quit being a perfectionist, you know, and, and go to into the real world of what American politics is, which is candidate centered politics. Like, and I so I always do. I go, OK, I'll look at your candidates. I check them out thoroughly. So I'm not you know, and Sanders people. It's just amazing to me. Uh, don't want to deal with yep. his record or don't even seem to know about it. And quite frankly, much of it is really sort of shockingly, uh, imperial. I, I, I always thought though with Obama, and I think this extends up to a hypothetical Sanders scenario, since we're sort of running with these hypotheticals here. I was with Obama though, that we wanted him to, to, win the election versus McCain because, and this is part of how I think we got Occupy. And this was the Doug Henwood thesis. If you remember in 08, um, that um, it's always useful. It, it that, that it was it was going to be very important for 18 to 29 year olds, for young American voters, to see to actually experience that you get a, a, a charismatic, young, telegenic Democrat in there, kind of a neo JFK. That's what Obama was, and and to experience that everything still sucks, the corporations still rule everything, you're still involved in an endless war of slash on terror you know you still have a a horrific police state and ghettos and surveillance and all of that to sort of jog people out of this notion that what's wrong with the country is that the president is a republican all a republican ever doing in the being in the white house it seems to me ever does is just reinforce the notion that that's what's wrong with the country you know and that we've got to get a, a democrat in so you know if mccain had won in 08 i don't know if we would have had a occupy instead we would have had a big get out the vote for barack or hillary in 2012 movement that would have co-opted everything in advance that's part of how we got the new left in the 60s was the jfk JFK and lbj right now with 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 sanders um maybe we could get that same lesson yeah that's right in a different kind of way
0: but i i have to i i understand that i really truly do but i have to push back on that because number one okay let's let's take that thesis all the way right so It's laid out there, Okay, you got to you got to have this like neo-JFK progressive or whatever to disabuse young people of the notion that, you know, electoral politics of the Democratic Party of of, of that, you know, quote unquote, center left variety is is, you know, is rigged and it doesn't change anything. Okay, fine. We got our Obama. We've had eight years of it. Things have gotten worse. And has any lesson been learned? Has anything substantive as far as left progressives go come out of that? The answer, in my view, is no. If anything, it's only reinforced exactly the same cycle to be repeated once again. And that's the problem I have with that. And let me make one other point about that. Obama, unlike McCain, totally demobilized the anti-war movement. That is one of the principal functions oh, of, of left progressives. And so the, the idea that a left progressive disabuses people of the notion that you know, uh, you know this or that, I would say the opposite. I would say that the, that the left progressive re-entrenches the idea that, oh, if we could just have a, a more progressive guy – that is what we really need. When the answer, I think, is, of course, that there is no real distinction between left progressives and right Republican conservatives other than, you know, some some superficial social and cultural issues and maybe, you know, a, a, little, a little deviations here and there, particularly in the way that they talk about it. And that is the problem I have here. And I, I have the same problem with Bernie right now that I did with that logic in 2008. I don't see that. I don't see left. Lessons being learned. If anything, I see the same mistakes being made.
1: Well, I mean, you might be right. And ultimately, I think our focus has to be not on hypotheticals. This might happen or that might happen. That really is the left, you know, (laughs) needs to get sort of into the right, the spirit of the the 12 step recovery movement and focus on what's in its sphere of influence (laughs) and what isn't in its sphere of influence. And, you know, we can discuss hypotheticals all we want, but the fact of the matter is that we need to have a kind of institutional presence and an organizational presence that we just do not have right now. We need an institutional organizational capacity for the kind of direct action and, and grass movement activity that, um, that we, just, we just, you know, it unfortunately is, is, is lacking. And, of course, the electoral politics uh, addiction and obsession and madness, I think, is, 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 uh, is part of that. But, I mean, and, and, and so that sort of, that means focusing on movements not as adjuncts, To getting a a so-called socialist president in there, but in and of themselves, they need to be understood as having value beneath and beyond the electoral extravaganzas, whatever their outcomes. Um, One thing that I think might be happening, though, uh, that is going on on the right, which is the potential implosion of the Republican Party. Uh, there, there. This is a wing of the party system that seems to be in something of a crisis right now. Trump is kind of a reflection of that crisis, and you know I think they're going to be, if they're smart, they're going to be in a situation this year where they, 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 probably need to just give up on the presidential election altogether. I think they I, are. They sh- if they shut down Trump, they're going to have this, this, this Trump and proletarian shit show. I mean, they're going to have, you know, they're going to have a, a major disturbances in Cleveland and elsewhere. And all these white nationalist neo-fascists are going to go absolutely crazy. I don't think they want that. They also don't want Trump in. Trump is, is so toxic, particularly with female voters. He makes, their, you know, and that party is in huge trouble. And with that party cycles into deepening crisis, I think the, the, the standard lesser evilist argument uh, that democr- becomes less potent. That, that establishment Democrats are always able to use uh, against less activists. I always, I always say that the, the Republican Party, the, the, the death of the Republican Party, as much as I hate how much the, the, the Democrats get everyone you know, to focus completely on the Republicans, the death of the Republican Party uh, might be something that establishment Democrats might, uh, might uh, regret to some extent because it takes away uh, uh, um, the implosion of the Republican Party takes away the sort of the good cop. Kind of, bad cop yep. argument. I, I mean, you go to a city like Chicago, there was no Republican Party in Chicago. Um, you know, the the bad cop, the Rahm Emanuel is the bad cop. The Democrats have always been, you know, sort of the corporate party at the same time there. And you just had this, re- you had these remarkable movements that emerge in Chicago and I suppose in other cities. It's kind of interesting how that plays out where there isn't a Republican Party. So, um, I don't know. It, it might be the, the, the sort of, uh, that, that sort of capacity for social movement so, uh, sort of playing off the Democrats and then turning against them might might end up being energized to some extent in a sort of post-Republican environment. I think that there, I, I,
0: I agree on certain points. Let's pick it up there on the other side of the break. You're listening to my conversation here with Paul Street. Visit paulstreet.org. Follow his columns and uh, his articles on Counterpunch. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
2: She was born in a school bus on the Blue Ridge Parkway Her parents had driven from San Francisco Bay It was late December of 1968 And the skies were filling with the darkness of hate Bobby and Martin were long gone The flower children were saying, very last song. Nixon was heading to that big white house, and the bombs would soon be dropping on the children and But a beautiful little girl was born on Christmas Day, away from the madness that had driven them astray. Gary. Sparkle ride. didn't know what to do Eyes out and our made it feel strange She missed the hippie children with earth and nature names Now all the boys fell in love with her on the first day of spring Baby
0: I'm chatting with Paul Street. We're talking about Bernie, the Democrats, Republicans, Trump. Um, Just before the break, uh, Paul, you were you were talking about, you know, the Republican boogeyman, the bad cop and what might happen if uh, the Republican Party were to implode. And I think that that is a really important discussion to have here because. Well, for a number of reasons. Now, I, I'm i going to get into the sort of the grassroots question here in a second, but let's just focus on the party. Um, we have a very real potential for uh, – I mean you're even hearing John Kasich and some others talking about a brokered convention. Okay, now to me that is – politically speaking the equivalent of the declaration of civil war within the Republican party i mean yeah. u- ultimately that is the establishment basically going against what is clearly and unmistakably a major groundswell of support for trump from within the traditional base of the republican party and without going too deep into it, I think most people listening to us probably know the history, the Republican Party absorbing the Southern racist vote out of the old Dixiecrats, out of the old Democratic Party, that having been made into more or less the central uh, base of the Republican Party with the big business and all the other stuff, of course, a fundamental part of the Republican Party as well. And that, uh, you know, that racist at white nationalism Supremacist element has really turned on the business establishment in the Republican Party. Trump has really capitalized on that, and so if they really do try to steal this away from Trump, and I think ultimately that's how it would need to be understood, they'd be stealing the nomination away from Donald Trump, who more than any other candidate has earned it. You know, I hate to say it, but it's a fact. Um, it seems to me that it would basically be setting fire to their own house. Now, I understand the implications of that, what you were alluding to before the break, but let's talk that out a little bit further what happens in that scenario? What do you see happening? Do we see rioting in the streets? Do we see the Republican establishment going pro-Hillary? I think that there's a lot of evidence to support that, including potentially you know, the, Repub- the, the neocon establishment backing her as she's far more of a neocon than Trump is in, in a lot of ways. So let's play that out. What do you see happening?
1: Oh, yeah, no, a lot of that money, there's already, like you said, a bunch of top imperial uh, operatives have declared their fealty uh, to Hillary Clinton. I mean, who, you know, Rand Paul accurately described Hillary as a neocon anyway. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that, that, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, it's going to be incredibly provocative um, if, if he comes in close to that, you know, that magic number, 1,237 delegates and they actually operationalize this RNC rule that uh, he could go down to 0 and start all over again or maybe even not even be part of the process uh a lot of these trump guys um they are mainly guys i think become mo- dangerous when they lose you know yep. uh either to hillary and um, that'll be a problem too uh or or here and uh, god knows what happens i think they'll yeah i mean i think the I think there'll be some violence. I, they certainly aren't going to turn out for who the uh, for who the GOP supports. They're they're, they're going to have to have Donald. That's why I don't think the uh, Republican National Committee wants to mess with that. I mean, I that would just that would just that would play out uh, just absolutely horrifically. It seems like it would be they'd be shooting themselves in the head almost literally. Well, I mean, like I said, I think I think they're I I think they need to kiss off. The, I mean, they, you know, Donald. I mean, Cruz is is horrific too, and and a lot of those those same elite operatives. Who uh, who don't want to go to Trump? Go with Trump also don't want to go with Cruz. Who after all is just an incredibly psychotic evangelical Christian uh, lunatic who might be more dangerous in many ways than than, um, than Trump to American image and to American stability. Uh, so yeah, I think that money goes to Hillary. I, I the RNC if they're smart needs to kiss off the presidential this time and try and maintain whatever they can of their uh gerrymandering and coke money coke brother money um, control of of Congress in the state houses and the state and the state governorships around in this country they need to uh, they need to cut their losses as as far as I can tell yeah I think it plays out for uh, i think it plays out for hillary yeah i
0: now here's where I want to. Um, draw out some some differences that I have with some other people. And I guess I'm, I even have a bit of a difference with some of the things that you wrote in, in, in your last piece, mm-hmm. uh, the second thoughts on Bernie's viability, which was, what was that, March 31st. Um, so, okay, I, you didn't really make the argument as forcefully as some other people, but there mm-hmm. is this meme going around that Donald Trump represents an "Quote unquote anti-imperial outlook that he is not that he is an isolationist that he is against uh, interventions that he is against nation building that he wants to uh, uh, dismantle and or withdraw and or demobilize NATO that he wants to basically follow policies that would be de- that if they were conducted by anybody else would be described as peacenik policies okay now. Here is the issue, and, I, and even Counterpunch has published some stuff from certain people who I, uh, I, I, I vehemently disagree with on this point. Donald Trump, in my view, represents exactly zero threat to the military-industrial complex. He represents zero threat to the empire. What he says is just bluff and bluster because he goes from one talking point to the next. Whatever the hell pops into his mind, he says, he may genuinely believe these things. To me, it is irrelevant. A Trump presidency is an imperial presidency, no different from any other president. I will point to a couple of examples here when he named his foreign policy team. I wrote a piece on this. It was published in Counterpunch as well called President Trump, question mark, U.S. war machine rules on. Look at who's in his policy team. Jeff Sessions chairs it. He is a vehemently pro-NATO. He supported the bombing of Serbia when he didn't have to. As a Republican under Clinton, he supported it. He supported the Iraq war, everything Bush did, all of that stuff. Walid Ferez, the lead foreign policy expert in Trump's ear. This is an arch neocon. He was involved with the Falange movement in Lebanon slaughtering Palestinians funded by Israel. He worked with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies which is basically PNAC right? That's the project for New American Century an arch neocon who speaks a little bit of Arabic. Okay? That's all he is. Now you look at, I mean, and we could point to all of the connections with Wall Street, Big Oil, uh, you know, the, the, the Pentagon, Bush's um, uh, Inspector General, who's now on Trump's team. I mean, this is an arch reactionary pro imperialist foreign policy team. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. You look at you look at all of these things. You take it one step further beyond just what Trump is saying. And to me, as you were alluding to with Obama and Sanders, once you examine these people, you examine their pedigree, you can understand why Trump can stand on the stage and say 20 to 30,000 U.S. troops into Syria, 20 to 30,000 U.S. troops into Iraq, Iraq, drop a nuclear bomb on ISIS, all of this kind of absolute shit, and yet I'm supposed to swallow that Trump is a threat to the Empire? Come on.
1: Yeah, well the ruling class makes sure that in the and the Empire makes sure they win no matter who the major party candidate exactly is. And um you know the thing about Trump is uh he doesn't have a policy record. I mean he's been a, he's been a media personality, he's been a real estate well, I mean, I think you're right about the people around him. So you really have to look at at who he's got around him. I don't doubt that. If, I mean, I I don't know how far he's going to go. Uh, and I I can't imagine him winning the presidency. But if that were to actually happen, then you could be absolutely sure in the interregnum and certainly after the Republican National Convention. Maybe we'll see that. Yeah, Empire people. Uh, uh will will just absolutely can congeal around him. I yeah, he's still though. He's not. He doesn't have that. Um, he he certainly doesn't have that kind of council of foreign relations pedigree and background that obama did and that uh, and even more hillary does i think the, the the real sophisticated cfr types would rather not have to uh give someone an advanced seminar on what the triad is and uh, you know and 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 the nature of the world capitalist system but uh, i mean trump you're absolutely right that trump's just all over the place um um and uh and and is is was will be largely captive to the folks that he'd uh, have around him. However, I don't think we're going to see a Trump presidency anyway.
0: Well, I don't I don't necessarily think so either, although, you know, 3 months ago I was well, Maybe five months ago, I was saying that Trump is a joke and a sideshow. Then I said Trump is not likely. Now, I mean, Jesus, I don't even know what to say now. I mean, things have gotten so out of control that it it has to be taken seriously. I mean, we, we can't not take Trump seriously at this point. This is what I'm saying, though. This... Notion, and we see it from right wing you know uh, right wing circles and even some people on the left who are describing Trump in this way, I think is deeply um, problematic to say the least, and I think actually quite dangerous now here 's the other question or that, or comment that I want to make, and I want to get your take on it. Other people, and and you kind of alluded to this uh, in your piece as well, have talked about how Trump could really invigorate our grassroots movements, you know, because there would be fighting in the streets and all of this opposition. That is also, to me, a very dangerous way to look at this sort of thing, because while it's true, Trump also mobilizes fascist forces that have been in many ways forcibly suppressed in this country for decades. I mean, at the very least, since the 1950s, uh, this is now coming out in the open. When you look at the kinds of things that are happening at some of these Trump events, the beatings of black people and all of the rest of that, I mean, that is just the tiniest taste of what we would be seeing in the future. And I, maybe I'm a cynic, but I don't have enough faith in the left and in our left grassroots movements to be able to take on what would be a mobilized and organized white supremacist and fascist element in the united states they would be organized and the danger in my view is not trump it's whoever comes after trump that's the that's the real danger. Trump is just an a, a demagogue. Trump is what he is. He's a personality. But there is somebody on the right, on the far right, right now in some state legislature or somewhere who is taking notes and saying, "Hey, I could do that, and I could do that better than he is."
1: Yeah, I um I think that I mean I, I, I talked about you know rebellion in the streets resulting from Trump kind of in a tongue and cheek kind of sense uh i don't i don't think the people in the streets would win that's right um you know and i, I there would be a sort of a kind of a uh, uh an anger that would see the crossed urban america but i don't think it would be shared by the police forces uh, you know in urban america and in uh you know county sheriffs and so forth and i think it could lead to a kind of uh increase of repression um that, that that ultimately would be a, would be a losing proposition. I think Trump being in the White House or any Republican being in the White House. And sort of repeating myself, but it always just kind of uh, reinforces this uh, uh, this sense amongst progressive people that uh, you know and liberals uh, that what's wrong with the country is there's a Republican in the White House, and the solution is it to we to, that we've got to get a Democrat in the White House. I always sort of prefer the 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 the, the White House to be owned by presidents uh, by Democrats. I prefer the Democrats to sort of own the stink of the uh, corporate and an imperial system um and yeah uh there are real live long standing white nationalist elements uh, many of them quite brutal and quite violent who have been energized reenergized uh... over over the years certainly by the obama presidency and and, and the, sort of the racial aspects of that yep and now, and now by trump who would now feel that they had a man uh, in of 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 their ilk, certainly a white nationalist. I call them Americaners, you know, and the basis of Africaners, right? The old South African white diehards. There's a, there's a lot of dangerous Americaners out there who feel very emboldened by a Trump presidency. They might also sort of feel betrayed by a uh, Trump presidency and move in more dangerous uh, uh, directions. Trump strikes me as more a uh, a Berlusconi at best than a Mussolini. Uh, or a Hitler, but there are kind of fascistic themes uh, in his campaign presentation that are very chilling. I mean, this notion of a nation that's been stabbed in the back by weak liberals and it's going to be made great again uh, uh, by closing the doors to racially impure others and immigrants from outside the country. Uh, that's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty scary stuff. Yeah,
0: that's Hitler. I mean, that that is Hitler. I'm not saying Trump well, is Hitler. Well, in, in a Vanity that's...
1: Fair piece in 1990, uh I think Trump's first or was it a second wife? I can't remember. Uh, pointed out uh, was was quoted as saying that he kept uh, a collection of Hitler's speeches. I think it was My Triumph or something. You have to people have to find the title of it by his bedside for 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 quite some time in the. Uh, this. in the late 1980s you read hitler's speeches well you can almost uh, sometimes i wonder does he you know, some of the themes he evokes is this this guy study hitler yeah, well, that's precisely the point. The stabbing
0: in the back, right? That is Hitler to a T. And, oh, yeah. And, and, and again, you know, I'm not suggesting that Trump is Hitler, not even close. Uh, I don't believe that he is uh, – That he. I don't believe that there's any genuine beliefs in Trump, not in a real sense. I think it's, it's ego and it's uh, desire for, you know, the spotlight and all of the rest of that. But this is what I'm saying, that – What Trump has become is a magnet, a pole around which these forces can mobilize and organize. And when Trump as an individual leaves the scene, those forces stay in place. And now they are organized in a way they haven't been probably since the Civil War. Okay, Now, that to me is something incredibly dangerous if you take into account what a lot of the best economists in the world are predicting, which is global economic collapse much larger than 2008. The economic indicators objectively are terrifying right now that we seem to be on the precipice of some kind of a major global economic collapse now. Against the backdrop of that kind of a collapse, what does a Trump and or the person who follows Trump and seizes on that movement, what do they become? I think it's obvious.
1: Yeah, no, you have a kind of, uh, of creation of a scenario for an actual emergence of a, fa- of a real fascist movement uh, in this country. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the stock prices, uh, the assets are just absurdly inflated. Uh, there's probably less capacity to bail out and sustain capitalism now than there was after 2007-8. You have this continuing evisceration of, uh, you know, basic job opportunities for the white working, white lower middle class. Uh, And you've got the country saturated with with military-style weaponry and assault weapons. And, uh, you know, and you have this kind of sense that – that the president – I mean this is – people, you know, leftists should listen to right-wing talk radio. I mean a bunch of people are convinced that uh, that socialism's already been in power for the last eight years. And that, that, by the way, that doesn't have to be Bernie Sanders. They'll say the same thing for Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton used to get called a socialist a lot more than Barack Obama did on the American uh, radical right and, you know, the, I think the Sanders thing sort of um, – fascism has always sort of drawn a certain amount of energy from a perception that there's a threat on the left. That there's You know, you actually got a presidential candidate doing surprisingly well who calls himself a socialist that only feeds that kind of paranoid style right-wing uh, politics. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I hate to sound so depressing, but uh, I'd echo some of those concerns. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, it, it, look, it's not – it is depressing, obviously, but this is the reality that we're facing, and none of what I'm saying should be taken as any kind of an endorsement of lesser evil voting in favor of Hillary Clinton, because I also think that Hillary Clinton, particularly in her foreign policy outlook, is equally dangerous, because, in, because while Trump may be mobilizing fascist elements in a, and galvanizing a fascist movement in the United States— Hillary is driving us potentially to a world war scenario conflict with the kind of policies she pursues, uh, whether it's Ukraine and saber rattling against Russia, whether it's the South China Sea, you know, the Korean Peninsula, you know, the Middle East. We could point to a million different examples, and Hillary is absolutely an arch imperialist, and the stakes are very, very high, so she could, uh, you know, blunder us into a global war scenario too. So my doomsday is equally distributed among both sides here, but what I'm saying though is that there is, I think, a remarkable obliviousness to the danger we're facing from liberals when it comes to Trump because they only want to talk about racism, politically incorrect, you know, political incorrectness, all of the rest of that. That only feeds Trump. Nobody really wants to examine the objective and material conditions conditions that we see here the police state the police state architecture and infrastructure is already in place and it has been for a long time it just takes somebody to flip the switch
1: well i mean it was it was democratic city administrations in coordination with barack obama's home department of homeland security that shut down occupy by force in the fall and winter of 2011 i mean one of the great ironies of trump versus hillary Here's this guy railing against uh Muslim immigrants and against Mexican immigrants who doesn't even actually have a policy record You look at hillary uh, uh, she actually has a, a long standing record of driving imperial policies leading imperial policies that are pr- precisely producing the flood of migrants out of you know absolutely horrible nation destroying community crushing policies in libya in syria and also in honduras yep. and by the way here in the midwest in factory areas we are a lot of people think they're seeing mexican workers and they're actually seeing honduran workers starting to show up at places like the proctor and gamble plant here in iowa city uh well because of a horrible disgusting right-wing coup uh that hillary played the leadership role here in the united states in a in aiding and abetting now you know uh, uh donald uh uh, uh rails against Mexicans and, and, and Muslims, uh, uh, Hillary pretends to be almost liberal in defending their, uh, their rights to be in this country and, and not be deported and so forth, uh, even while she's driving people, and even while the Democratic administration of power is driving people out of their homelands. And, and meanwhile, she's picking fights uh, with countries, and particularly Russia. Uh, though also she's going to be an eager confronter of uh, China. You know, it's just amazing. Yeah. You have to hear about China's aggression. Well, where? You know, in 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 uh, you know off the off the, the Pacific coast of the United States. No, in the South China Sea. Right? Yeah. It's hilarious. You know, in their own territorial waters, are very close to them. She's picking fights with people that um, really could lead us down to a path towards annihilation. Absolutely.
0: This is this is the danger of the moment. This is what I keep stressing to people and this is why I don't buy into the illusion from any of these candidates. I don't think Bernie is a threat to the establishment not in a real way. I don't think that I obviously Hillary is the establishment and I don't think that Trump is a threat either. This is this is the point is that when people get worked up about the horse race, that is a an, an election. My response is: Do you really think that the ruling class gets worked up? They know that they own all of the horses.
1: You know, and they own them in so many more ways than Bernie ever talks about. Yeah. You think that this country uh, had been a democracy prior to the uh, the horrible plutocratic. Uh, citizens united decision around campaign finance i mean this forget the fact that we already had an even more horrific campaign finance decision in nineteen seventy six called buckley v Valeo. i mean it's a terrible the citizens united decision is terrible but you know uh... the campaign finance finance is just the tip of the iceberg yeah. of the many and different various kinds of ways that the uh... that the uh... capitalist elite controls this country. It does so with a revolving door with the fact that people might serve in Congress for one or two terms and then know very well that they're going to make 18 times more money working for a lobbying firm or directly for a corporation or a corporate law firm afterwards and therefore are very careful about what they do and what they say while they're in office. It has to do with the, the threat of capital to shut down operations in any jurisdiction, any state in America or in the United States itself where it feels that Regulations, taxes, whatever, don't fit their bottom line. And they set up somewhere else so cap capital mobility. It has to do with the ownership of the media. Uh, Bernie alludes to corporate media every once in a while. But it, but it goes much deeper than anything he ever talks about and, in fact, invades the very content, not just of the news, uh, but of entertainment media, which is just riddled with propagandistic, uh, imperialistic uh, uh, messaging. It includes the sponsorship of intellectuals. It includes the structuring and the nature of education from K all the way up through a PhD. I mean, it, it includes the fact that people have, have to work such long hours just to, just to barely read reasonably get by and pay rent and mortgage and put food on the table that they have no time whatsoever left for debate uh for for studying public issues i mean i could go on it's so much more than campaign finance and i think you're absolutely right that one danger of bernie's of, of either getting denied the democratic nomination or or uh, amazing you know to be a fantasy getting the democratic nomination and losing is that then his supporters would all go oh we just have to uh reverse the citizens united decision and get, you know, a little more public financing or disclosure in campaign finance and that's like that's going to fix anything
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. We could go for hours, but we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I have much more doomsday and apocalypse to talk (laughs) about after the break with my next guest. But uh, Paul Street, always a pleasure, even when it's very uh, displeasing. Uh, PaulStreet.org, he is a regular contributor to Counterpunch. You can find all of his work. You can find him outside your house burning Bernie effigies. Uh, You can find him doing all sorts of very very mean, ultra sectarian things. Paul Street, thanks so much for coming on the show again.
1: You bet, Eric. (laughs)
0: Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Draitzer, and we're going to turn now to a very different subject, but one that I think is really of paramount importance. I've mentioned it before on this show, you um, issues of climate change and, uh, you know, environmental issues generally, which I think in many ways they sort of encapsulate all of the political problems, all of the political issues and economic issues that we deal with on a daily basis. And I have to admit, if I'm being perfectly honest and self-reflective about the issue, I've spent many years, um, you know, of, of my adulthood really focusing on political issues, learning about them, studying different ideologies and the history and the conflicts and all of these things. And to be perfectly blunt, I feel to some degree that I've been a bit negligent when it comes to environmental issues, when it comes to climate change in particular. And only in the last few years have I really come around uh, to understanding the significance and importance of this issue, really the centrality of it. And there have been many people whose work I've come across over these last few years that have impacted me and impacted my thinking about a lot of these issues. And I'm very happy to be able to have... have one of those people on the show with me today, uh, Kevin Hester, who is an anti imperialist environmentalist, which of course I love such a designation that really is up my alley. Um, he will soon have a website that is under construction. It's kevinhester.net, uh, but for now, you can connect with him on Facebook and on Twitter at IconicKevin. Uh, Kevin Hester, I'm happy to have you on Counterpunch Radio. Talk about all of these issues. Welcome on the show. Um so I want to I want to begin with something that's pretty current as we're speaking here uh in the 3rd week of March and And that is this major, I guess we could say, landmark study uh, that's now come out and has been peer-reviewed by James Hansen, who is really considered one of the central authorities on uh, climate change, maybe the the father of the climate change, movement of climate change, uh, understanding in the field of climatology. So he has a new study out, and quite frankly, it's shocking and it's terrifying. So can you give us a little bit of background on the Hansen study, what it says, and what the implications are?
4: Absolutely. The interesting part about this paper is that it was originally released in July last year without peer review. James Hansen broke all the protocols of science, and he released a paper prior to peer review. And that shocked everyone because, you know, obviously that's not the done thing, especially for not so, uh, so respected a scientists. And the reason Hansen did that is because the peer review process takes so long. We're in a time now of abrupt climate change. This isn't normal climate change that people have been talking about for decades. We're in abrupt climate change. We're in the runaway stage of this catastrophe. Hansen came out and released that paper and The proverbial hit the fan and everyone um, attacked him as they normally do in a situation like this. And now it's been put through peer review and it's been diluted. The terminology, the words that are being used now are uh, are much more toned down than they were in July last year. I had an online conversation with Michael E. Mann, another one of the world's leading um, climate scientists. And at the time... He did an interview for bradblog.com, I think it was July 29th last year, where he said that he think that the reason Hansen went live before peer review was because he thinks it's gone exponential, as do I and some of the other scientists that I work with. We believe it's an exponential catastrophe now. And, and he went out because the peer review process normally takes four to six years. And in a time of abrupt climate change, we can't wait around for four to six years for all these boffins to decide what terminology they're going to use in the paper. (laughs) To get this through peer review in nine months is probably close to a record. But that's because these people sense the the urgency that the situation uh, requires.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, it's fascinating to me, exactly as you said, and look, we have to be honest, there's no surprise that, you know, academics and those who, you know, quote, work in quote, unquote, respectable institutions and in the field and so forth, that they would want to tone down the language that they would want to, uh, you know, maybe minimize, let's call it the shock value of what Hansen has to say. But let's talk a little bit about that, if you could expand, if if you wouldn't mind, what exactly they toned down versus what Hansen was actually saying. Give us a comparison, how Hansen put it last summer versus how it's being presented in the paper as it's being published.
3: In the first
4: paper, there were, you, there were words like catastrophic and exponential and all, all of those adjectives um, explaining how absolutely dire the situation is. A lot of those words have been removed. The, the basis of the paper is still the same. In, in it, he repeats the term non-linear a multitude of times. And I think for, for any of your listeners, I would really like them to learn about the exponential function and the difference between a linear unravelling of the biosphere and an exponential unravelling. The, the, the energy balance of this planet has been Irretrievably altered, and what it does is it, it creates and unleashes an, an enormous number of tipping points that have a domino effect. And we all know that once you know the dominoes start falling, the whole thing unravels very quickly. We're in that stage now, and so much of the of the science papers they rely on past modeling, on what's happened in other situations where there's been large large amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But the difference between this one is that humans have dumped millions and millions of years of stored carbon into the atmosphere in less than 200 years. The vast majority of that carbon has been dumped in the last few decades. This is all exponential. If, if you want to learn more about it, I'd go, suggest people go to YouTube and uh, search for Albert Bartlett, and he has an amazing presentation about the exponential function where he shows that if you if you took a grain of wheat and put it on the first square on a chessboard and then an- doubled that onto the next ch- uh, square and doubled that onto the next square, by the time you get to the end of the chessboard, you need more rice and more wheat than was grown on this planet in 1969. That is the exponential function. Our biosphere is unravelling exponentially.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's tough to it's tough to hear that and and not feel a sense of despondency, but I do think that there is a need to confront some of these issues and whether we agree or disagree about the, you know, the 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 magnitude of this or the time scale or whatever, I think it's very important to entertain precisely these ideas for instance you're talking about you know this exponential uh unraveling of the biosphere and we can even see Specifically, certain triggers that are actually taking place right now as we speak that we can actually quantify with the current research that seem to validate precisely what you're describing, what others uh, who share that view are describing. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I had Robert Hunziker on this program, and we were talking about uh, the feedback loop that is being created with the melt of the Arctic ice so that when the ice has melted, you're no longer reflecting the sun's rays back out uh you know into the into outer space and instead it's all being absorbed and that feeds on itself creating a sort of self-replicating and exponentially nonlinear increasing problem including for instance the unlocking of methane stored under the arctic which then of course exponentially increases the rate of climate change this to me are real fundamental material indicators of the kind of non-linear function you're talking about
4: absolutely spot on the elephant in the room that is bearing down on all of us is the methane mark monster uh, people can go to YouTube and look up the Arctic methane monster. So Jennifer Hines has done two pretty amazing presentations on it. And then there are two Russian scientists who um, work at the, the University of Fairbanks in Alaska, uh, Natalia Shakova and um, Igor Similov. Now, they brought out a, a, a landmark paper where they believe that at any moment from now on, there could be a 50 gigaton a 50 billion tonne discharge of methane from the, from the Arctic seabed into the atmosphere. The, the consequences of a discharge like that are absolutely catastrophic. And for some reason, the IPCC has stopped talking about methane. They used to talk about methane, but they don't talk about it anymore. And the, there is some contention about it. One of the... One of the things is, is that methane is measured in parts per billion rather than parts per million but a, a really important thing to remember is that is that it's 40 to 100 times worse a climate change gas than carbon and then in the one of the previous extension events the paleocene ecocene thermal maximum methane was one of the main drivers and whether people believe that this is about to happen or not the reality is, is the door has been unlocked and it could happen at a moment's notice. We have never been in this situation before. My, I personally believe that it will happen and I believe it could happen at any moment. Just like Igor Semelov uh, said uh, it in, in the pr- presentation on YouTube that, that Natalia Shikova and him did, she said that, you know, oh, well, we don't know if it could happen like right away. But and then he interrupted her and he said, yes, it could happen at, at any moment from now on. And that presentation is a few years old. The oceans have warmed up enormously since that time. The Arctic News blog, which is a really awesome place that you can go for information on methane, um, they have been documenting it, and they've seen that the temperature's rising up in the Arctic, the uh, the ocean temperature's rising, and that can destabilise the clathrates, because the clathrate is, the, the methane is stored in what's called a clathrate, which is a chemical cage that is held stable by a combination of water pressure and temperature. And because the sea levels have risen a little bit, the water pressure's gone up, which has helped, but the temperature has gone up, which has made them uh, less stable. So we've, we've just completely unleashed the methane monster, and we're waiting for it to arrive on our doorsteps as we speak.
0: I think that's right, and it's it's quite terrifying to be honest. And I we, we've seen even uh, real indications. I try to try to focus on as much hard evidence as we can point to, and I think that the uh, conclusion is now pretty well documented that those massive sinkholes that have been studied in Siberia are the result of permafrost melt, which has unlocked methane that has essentially, um, for lack of a better word, exploded through the you know through to the surface of the Earth and created these giant gaping uh, sinkholes that are, I mean, who, who knows exactly how far down they go. And that, I think, might just be one small indication of the kinds of effects that methane can have even on the landmass, not even just under the Arctic.
4: Absolutely, that's true. One of the things that people have to bear in mind, we know this is happening now, all right? We are approximately 1.6 degrees C above the 1870 baseline. The IPCC worst-case scenario is a 6C increase. I believe personally that the planet will get more than 6C. I don't believe it will go Venus, but I do believe it will go above 6C. All of this is happening now at 1.6 degrees C above baseline. We're going to get warmer, hotter, faster, exponentially faster every day. Those releases from the permafrost are going to happen more, faster every day. The class rates will be released. We had 11,000 fires burning a few months ago in Indonesia. Yeah. Those fires were burning on peat bogs. Well, here we again. A, a peat bog's not supposed to be on fire. It's a bog, for goodness sake. But the capitalists who are, who are destroying the Indonesian rainforests so that they can plant palm oil plantations, have paid people to go in and set these fires. Those 11,000 fires that were burning were emitting more carbon than the United States. The United States is the second largest carbon emitter on the planet. For a brief period of time, we had a new second largest carbon emitter on the planet. That is how quick things can change.
0: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And then one other thing I want to, I want to, just bring in here before we move on a little bit is this question of storms because we also know that it's not just that the storms are getting more intense because of all of this it's that they're becoming more unpredictable. We're seeing them in places that are not accustomed to them at times of the year that we're not accustomed to seeing them and of course that they're getting much more intense as well and you know a lot of this comes back to this disruption of the normal rhythms of the planet, and you know, of course, we know what we we well. A lot of people know about Gaia theory and the notion of the Earth as a living organism. But leaving that aside, just the rhythms of the planet and the ecosystem, the interconnected ecosystem of the planet, the disruption to it alone is causing uh, maybe not let's not use the word catastrophic, but certainly devastating changes in the in the uh, pattern of storms.
4: One of the Key parts of James Hansen's latest paper is the is the story about superstorms, mega storms that are bearing down on us. Most people will know that he wrote a, a, a seminal book many years ago called The Storms of Our Grandchildren. Well, those storms are happening now, not in the future. We are the grandchildren, and they're happening now. Fiji, just in, a few weeks ago, had the first ever Category Five cyclone hit it, they had wind speeds of over 200 miles per hour. Nothing, nothing can survive that. The trees got shredded. Most houses had their roofs blown off. All the infrastructure got, just not all, lots of the infrastructure got destroyed. It brought with it huge deluges that it created... Flash floods that that washed away lots of their infrastructure. That is all happening when we are 1.6 degrees C above baseline. People in the US will remember Sandy, but oh. Sandy was relatively a long time ago. The planet was a, a lot cooler then than it was now. This exponential increase in temperatures is, is stunning. I'll give you an example about what's happened in the Arctic. According to NASA, the Arctic, this is only um, a month old, this uh, article from Darjimal, who I'd like to plug, give a plug to. Darjimal is the, the staff reporter at Truth Out. He's who, who, the person I consider as the world's leading climate uh, journalist. He reported that NASA was saying that the, the Arctic was a shocking 18 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than normal for the month of February.
3: Mm-hmm. 18
4: degrees Fahrenheit. Now to to get some real perspective on that, um, in Canada's Fort Yukon, which is a small native community just inside the Arctic Circle, people are describing the situation where the Arctic has been robbed of its winter. A researcher told The Guardian of the situation in in Fort Yukon, to put it in context, I tell people to imagine what if Los Angeles was sixty degrees warmer than it was supposed to be? Because Fort Yukon is sixty degrees warmer than it's supposed to be. Put that in perspective.
0: It's it's tough to even it's tough to even comprehend uh, what that really indicates. Now, there's something else that I want to bring up here because. Part of the problem is, and i 'm guilty of it. I think most of us are probably guilty of this. Part of the problem is simply not that not denying that these things are happening, but having a hard time facing some of these uh realities and 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 the sort of the picture that you 're painting and that others uh you know, including people like Guy McPherson and many others paint, which is a very, very bleak. Uh, reality a very bleak future where basically civilization as we know it uh, will not continue to exist and uh, you better just enjoy what you have now and that's something that's kind of difficult to swallow Um, so the question that I have for you is um, what's your position on this question of mitigating the effects of climate change in other words Is this something that, uh, you know, is this a future that human beings can adapt to? Or have you already gone to the point that this is so catastrophic that even adaptation is not going to happen and that basically we're doomed? I mean, I hate to put it in such stark terms, but there are people, uh, including the person I just mentioned, Guy McPherson, who do say that.
4: In the context of uh, Professor Guy McPherson, one of the reasons why I follow his work uh, very closely Until about four years ago, I didn't accept his uh, hypothesis that we are facing near-term human extinction. Um, I looked into it very closely, and I I definitely didn't accept it in the beginning. And then as time has gone by, and and I've followed this closely in the last few years, I very reluctantly come to accept that his position is correct. I I, I came to that... I had to be beaten with a big stick for me to make that uh, assumption. But the reality is is that this is no longer a carbon-driven catastrophe. Methane has become a very big player. The dominant culture of, of cowboy capitalism that rules our planet has no interest in any way, shape, or form of doing anything about mitigation. That all, all the left wing liberals around the planet are talking about. Oh, well, you know, we just have to buy an electric car. We just have to get an electric bicycle. That is complete bullshit. None of that will do anything. And one minor detail: ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the world's population can't afford an electric car. We're we're like crackheads on the crack pipe. Human civilization has be, has become addicted over the last 150 years t- to the consumption of carbon. Carbon is incinerating the biosphere and killing the living planet, but we're addicted like crackheads. The most important detail about why I believe that we won't get, get off this in any way that would be meaningful is that the people who run this planet, the corporations and their, and their puppets that, who they have in p- places in power all around the world, not just in the United States, where you effectively have two parties that are, are pretty much climate-changing denier parties, and none of them accept that we're in abrupt climate change. They send a guy back to New Zealand, a Wall Street banker by the name of John Key, and who had no political interests and no political history whatsoever. And then six years ago, he came back to New Zealand and miraculously became head of the Conservative Party in New Zealand called the National Party, National Socialist Party, I'd call him, but anyway. Um, <laughs> he, he's come back here and he's instigated um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, mm-hmm. which anyone who has any knowledge at all about the TPPA knows that it is a corporate coup. Now, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement will stop us from doing anything to mitigate. So... My, my personal view is there's is very, very little that we can do. A, we can't stop this catastrophe, but we could slow it down. Like any out-of-control vehicle, you can slow it down by taking your foot off the accelerator and putting it on the, putting your foot on the brake. But the reality is our brakes are broken. We had the opportunity to fix them a long time ago and we didn't ch- take it. In 1989, The United Nations said that we had a 10-year window of opportunity to do something about climate change. Well, we all know that that didn't happen, and it hasn't happened. And now we've driven the biosphere over the cliff, and we're heading – we're not heading to the cliff. I believe we're over the cliff, and we're in the free-fall stage. And then I think we need to. One thing I'd like to discuss as part of this is, is the nuclear issue and the imperialism issue that comes with our catastrophe.
0: Well, let's 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 hold that thought because we are uh, just about ready for a break. Um, on the other side of the break, I do want to pick that up because that is really the other critical piece to this puzzle. So. Uh, i'm chatting with kevin hester again uh it might be a little tough to swallow it might be not the most uh uplifting um information to get but i do think it's important and i do think that um kevin knows what he's talking about so uh let's let's uh let's head to break again follow kevin on twitter at iconic kevin and connect with him on facebook a lot of good information there stick with us we'll be right back
2: don't feel like
0: talking to myself
2: Empty bottles sitting on the shelf Rain beating down on the roof Like a lonely drum And that's a jail you can't escape from Talk about you Talk about me, talk about lonesome,
3: enough
2: for you, enough for me, and then some, all those loves that you took Talk about you, talk about me, talk about lonesome, enough for you, enough for me.
0: And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Kevin Hester. We're talking about climate change, abrupt climate change, a, a, Well, what can we call it? I mean, it really is kind of a doomsday scenario, but I do think it's important. And before the break, we were just touching on this question of uh, mitigating the effects of climate change versus adaptation. And there's really two levels of that, I think. And I want to touch on the imperialism in a second. But this question of adaptation, I agree with you on the point, Kevin, that um, as a species it's very difficult for us to adapt in the time frame that we're talking about. The economic system that's in place, capitalism, it's so destructive in the form that it is, to, well, it's destructive in general, but in particular, the neoliberal kind of capitalism that we see, which is only accelerating rather than decelerating. And so I agree with you on that point. But On the personal and the family and the community level, I do think that there are things that can be done in order to protect yourself, protect your family, protect your community to adapting to these changing circumstances. So let me just get you to comment really quickly on the difference between adaptation as a human civilization versus adapting to these changing circumstances on a personal and a family and community level.
4: Yeah, it's a very great, a very important point, and I think, in the family and community level, it, it, there's a lot of things that we could be doing. I spend my life working on the issue of climate change and public awareness about it. I do speaking tours about it. I do interviews like this. What I would suggest to people, and I'm really speaking to young people in this, is prepare for a different world. Prepare for a non-industrial civilization world. I, I believe industrial civilization is on a precipice that it could collapse at any time. I would say to young people, learn professions like permaculture, trades, practical skills, things that you could do in a practical environment where you're not relying on having money or the internet to fix things. I would really like communities to build build resilience within themselves. Obviously, that's impossible if you live in a large industrial city. If you live in a large industrial city, the only advice I could give to people is to get the hell out of there as quick as you can.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know what? I... Unfortunately, I I have to say that I do agree with you there. Um, And speaking as somebody who lives in New York City, one of the largest cities in the world, um, that is exactly where my head is at. And uh, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in the conversation with Robert Hunsiker. um, But, you know, this is an important question for me because, you know, while I'm not, you know, a kid anymore, I'm still relatively young. I'm just starting out a family. I'm just now embarking on this sort of, I guess, adult stage of my life. My life you know in my i'm in my early 30s and what you're saying really does resonate for me particularly as i think about what sort of a world i'm going to be bringing up my child in
4: i'll give you an analogy that i use often i've been an ocean sailor i've done 16 ocean passages on yachts half of them as skipper on small yachts under 60 or 70 feet and one of the things that we do when we sail is that we prepare for the, we hope for the best, and we prepare for the worst. Mm-hmm. I don't expect all your listeners to hear this interview and go, "Oh, yeah, yeah, he's right." I, I, I want you to question. I want people to question my position. But what I would like them to do is think, "Well, if it could be as bad as that Hester guy says, what should we be doing?" And I would say, build resilience. Surround yourself with people that you trust who have character and empathy and ethics, and try and build those micro-communities as fast as you can because time is much shorter than, than anyone thinks. I did a, a YouTube presentation with Guy McPherson where we discussed the, uh, a Robert Robert Kirosak um, presentation and paper about supply chain collapse. The supply chain, can collapse very, very quickly. If you ask the people in Miami who went through Sandy how fast it can crash, they'll give you a really good indication. That can happen on a global scale. If we have one of these 50 gigaton discharges of methane, it'll happen very quickly. When people see that the biosphere of this planet has been pushed over the edge, how are the central banks going to be able to sell 50-year treasury bonds? Mm-hmm. that whole Ponzi scheme that most of us in the anti-imperialist community have been following, we all know it's a Ponzi scheme. We all know it can unravel at a drop of a hat. If we had one of those discharges of, of methane, you would wake up the next morning and the old paradigm would be gone. Civilizations crash very quickly, and all civilizations crash. I just think that we are born in the most extraordinary time in history where we're staring at the end of the human movie. It's as dystopian as it could be as is our future
0: yeah, I mean I, as you're as you're speaking and i'm and I'm listening to you, you know, I have this internal battle going on just in my own mind that you know on the one hand there is definitely a significant part of me that really doesn't want to believe that entirely what you're saying. You know, on the on the other hand, I there's a part of me that really I mean I look at some of the evidence, I look at some of the things that we're seeing happening around the world, and I just can't help but think that you're you, you might be right. So, you know, that question I think looms large. And then this other this other point that I think we really need to discuss, and you mentioned it just before the break. The connection between... Climate change and imperialism. You've talked about it many times before. Um, I want to broaden this discussion out and discuss that because basically there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, we know that the it, the, the wars that we're seeing around the world, all of these things, they're being done for profit. We know that, how that feeds the system. On the other hand, there is this looming question about wars and potential global wars being fought over resources and how that's being driven by climate change there's a lot of discussion around this issue and i I just want to get your take on that and how you see the connection between those
4: all wars are resource wars they're always being fought over resources the primary resources in the last uh decades had been fossil fuels A large part of the war that we're seeing being carried out against the innocent people of Syria is about Syria's resources, the pipelines that were possibly going to be built through um, Syria to the Mediterranean to supply Iranian gas and, and oil to the European market. Syria has been under attack from those days. And, and we've got to remember that the occupied Golan Heights, and I would really like people to never use the term Golan Heights, I'd really like them to say occupied Golan Heights. That was a term that we all used in the 70s and 80s, and the media has dropped, but it is occupied by the Anglo-Zionists. And I believe what will happen is that these people are desperate, right? None of, one, none of us in the imp- anti-imperialist community uh, doubts that for a second now there's a concept called global dimming that not many people know about global dimming is that is that the pollution that we have put into the upper into the upper atmosphere is keeping this planet cool when 911 happened and in the week of the 911 that the us airplanes were grounded there was a 1.4 degree spike celsius spike And uh, hang a second, I'll I'll take that back. Uh, A 1.4 degrees—I'm not sure if it was Celsius or or Fahrenheit—spike in the global temperature, just as a result of those planes not being in the air. If we have a a collapse of industrial civilization, all that particulate falls out of the air, and we would get a massive three to four degrees temperature spike, just from the global—the loss of global dimming. I have a theory, and it's not only me, there's lots of different people. Carl Sagan Sagan did a, uh, an article about it, that you can see on YouTube, about a nuclear winter where if we had some degree of nuclear exchange, it would fire so much particulate and dust into the upper atmosphere that it would have a cooling effect on the planet. I believe the psychopaths once we get into the really bad, extreme runaway stage of this catastrophe, I believe the psychopaths will opt for a nuclear winter. Now, some people would say, "Oh, that's nuts! You know, why would they do that? You know, that's going to affect everyone." But if habitat is going to collapse very quickly, a nuclear winter would buy time for those uber-rich who are um, bunkering out all around the world, including in New Zealand. Yeah, the Russian. Steel billionaire Alexander Abr- Abramov, he's come to New Zealand to a, a, um, a part of the coast, up the coast from me, called Helena Bay, and he's spending a, a reported $50 million building a, a bunker-type house up there. I've had communications with some of the, the builders who are involved in it, and they said that the, the concrete bunker that is underground, out of sight that no one can see is enormous. No one can believe the number of concrete trucks that have gone down there and that concrete disappeared. It's down under the ground. This isn't a rural bay in New Zealand for goodness sake. What do you think he's doing? What do you think all of these oligarchs and billionaires are doing when they're coming to places like New Zealand? It's not because of the nightlife. They're not coming here because of that. They're coming here because they know the proverbial has already hit the fan and it's flying through the atmosphere and they're getting ready for it. And I think the possibility of a nuclear winter being carried out by the psychopaths is a distinct possibility.
0: Yeah, I, I unfortunately don't discount that. Um There's another question that really looms large, particularly for those of us who follow geopolitical issues um, and who want to see a political and geopolitical climate such that uh, power is more diffuse around the world, uh, who want to see power that is concentrated in Washington and in Wall Street and in London spread around the world that that might make for a more peaceful world. But so, you know, we talk about the BRICS, we talk about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the EEU, the Eurasian Economic Union, all of these new uh, multilateral institutions as, as changing the nature of geopolitics. But when we talk about climate change and we look at it from that perspective, not only do those things seem to diminish in importance, but we're also left with this with this burning question, and that is that the non-Western powers, such as Russia and China in particular, but also, of course, India and others, they are not only dependent upon fossil fuels, they are in in many ways fundamental to the continuation of this economic model. So it's sort of a conundrum because on the one hand, You want to support emerging Global South countries. On another hand, you don't want to see them developing in the direction that they're obviously developing.
4: Absolutely. My my take on it is, is that industrial civilization is a heat machine. Wherever you go, the more industrialization you have, the more heat you generate, the more emissions there are. My, my take on, the, on, on the, from an anti-imperialist position is that I don't see China and, to a lesser degree, Russia as being major imperialist nations. Their neighbours would disagree and they would say, oh, yeah, well, they've had imperialist ambitions towards us. Mm. But they are not. Russia. I don't believe Russia is stalking the Anglo-Zionist empire. I don't believe China is. But I do believe the Anglo-Zionist empire is stalking Russia and China. I watched a fantastic presentation that you did only a few days ago about how the empire is trying to undermine the democratic process in Brazil. I believe, and and a lot from what you you said in your presentation, is that that is not just an attack on Brazil. That is an attack on the BRICS. There's a 2009 paper published in Conservation Biology that concluded that more than 90% of all major armed conflicts between 1950 and 2000 took, took place in countries containing biodiversity hotspots. And at least 80% took place where the hotspots area, in those particular areas. The paper highlighted the need to incorporate, incorporate biodiversity conservation goals into peacekeeping and humanitarian programs in conflict areas around the world.
0: Um, okay, we we got to we we got to wrap it up here. We're we're pretty much over the time already, but I do want to just quickly touch on um one other one other point here and that is hope. Because I do think that that is something that is important for people that, you know, especially uh people like me for instance, you know, as I mentioned earlier, people who are say under the age of 40 uh who really are concerned about what this world is going to look like in another 25 to 30 years. I, I mean, is there something that you, can, that you can give to younger people listening to give them some semblance of hope? Every
4: time one of our comrades in Gaza or in Homs or in Yemen puts their children to bed at night at the moment, They hope that they won't get bombed tonight. They hope that they will wake up tomorrow morning and the bombing won't continue. They hope that it will pass and that they will have a peaceful day and a normal existence. These are the good old days. We are living them now. There is no promise. There is no guarantee for the future. I believe that we are looking at a completely and utterly dystopian future. But I hope today and tomorrow won't be that. I would suggest to everybody that they treat life as an incredibly precious thing, that they surround themselves with really good quality people, that they they let the dead wood go and they make the most of every single day. That's the only hope I can give.
0: And that's very, that's very well said, very well spoken. I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Kevin Hester, uh, environmentalist, anti-imperialist, uh, connect with him on Facebook. He's, he really does put out a lot of great information. Um, and also follow him on Twitter at Iconic Kevin and, uh, kevinhester.net coming soon, still under construction, but, uh, will be, I'm sure, a very great resource. Kevin Hester, thanks for coming on Counterpunch Radio
4: it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor i appreciate the opportunity what i would suggest is that we go, we do this again in let's say 6 months and we see how far and how much it's changed
0: great great let's do that deal okay listeners yeah. thanks again thanks again for tuning in as always speak to you real soon